You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. All right, Acts chapter 23 is where we're going to be. To be honest with you, as I, I will put one of the weeks away that I wasn't preaching, I was studying, preparing for next year. And so I got so fired up about next year, I wanted to come back today and say, just read the last six chapters on your own. We're going to move on to something else. That was my tendency, and yet we realize that all these chapters are here on purpose for us, and there's not one that we can skip. Every word that God records in his word is important for us and impacts our hearts. Amen? Amen. And so we don't skip anything. And so we said at the beginning of, of September, we're going to study through Acts. It was supposed to be done last June. We got into some texts, and it was just too hard to get through them in the time that I allotted. And so I'm a little bit AD, a little bit, sorry, not ADHD, but a little bit like... I can't use that word. My filter's working overtime. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Obsessive compulsive. That's a good way to say it. And so we have to finish this. And so we're at chapter uh, 23 today. And just remind you where we've been a little bit, because it's been a while. It's been since June that we were here. Um, we've been tracking with the early church as they've been exploding, as the Spirit fell in Acts 2, remember? And then the early church is exploding. The gospel message is exploding uh, through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God chose his people to be a blessing and a testimony of his goodness around the world. And so he enabled it to happen. We've been studying that through Acts and learning so much. Hopefully you've been learning so much and growing and maturing in what God's called your mission to be. It's the same as the early church. And what God's called our mission to be, it's the same as the early church. And so we've been tracking with Paul. It's first Peter, now it's Paul. And if you remember in Acts chapter 21... Paul was feeling relentlessly called to Jerusalem, and yet all the believers around him were saying, if you go to Jerusalem, there's going to be problems, and please don't go. And Paul's like, but I'm compelled to go. They need to hear the gospel in Jerusalem as well. I need to go back there. And so remember Agabus in Acts chapter 21, he did this little like show and tell where he's like, if you go, you're going to be bound with chains. And Paul said this, Paul said this in verse 13, I am ready to not only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. So what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? Exactly the same thing that Agabus said was going to happen. He got bound with two chains, which provided him an opportunity to preach the gospel there. And, and then we get to Acts chapter 23, and he just finished preaching the gospel. They don't know what to do with him, so they bring him before uh, the, the religious courts to be tried. And so we see uh, Paul on trial in Acts chapters 23 and 24. We see Paul standing to give account for his life and for his faith. And quite honestly, first read through this a, a couple months ago. I'm reading through this, and, and, and we want so deeply for God's word to impact our souls. Like, but what's the application for our lives? It's a, it's a trial setting. It's a, a setting where he's, he's standing before the religious people, just like a court in our day, but it's a religious court. And, and, and I'm looking at this going, but what's going to be the application for us? Because let's be honest, like probably none of us at this point are going to stand in a court on trial for our faith in Canada. Not yet. Key words, not yet. But I think it's coming. But I did realize this as I've been studying this, this passage, that the, there is a trial that we're all going through every single day. And some of the trials and the hardship trials, I think if we're going to passionately seek after God the way the early church does, the way that God calls us to an acts, get this, we're going to be on trial every single day of our lives as people around us watch to see if the reality of what we preach is the reality of the lives that we live. You ever realize that? I know in my position, I always say it's like a fish in a fishbowl. Like everybody's watching. As soon as you drop the thing, what do you do for a living? Pastors, like conversation stopper, eyes get wide. It's like, okay, let's see what's going on now. 
right? Let's see if you practice what you preach, pastor. And so every day I leave my house, I'm conscious of the fact that my neighbors are watching. <laughs> I'm sure as you go to work, if, if you're living for Christ, it's not just pastors that are in a fishbowl, let's be honest. We like to think so, right? Well, that's the pastor. He's got his own little thing. It's not. We're, we're all in a fishbowl. If we're passionately following Jesus Christ, people around us, we're, we're preaching it. If we're saying this is what we believe, people around you are watching. You're on trial every single day of your life. And they're watching. Your neighbors are watching. Is his lips and his life, do they match? Your coworkers are, are checking you out. Is, is he the real deal? He preaches a message, but is he, the real, is he the real deal? Is she the real deal? Your family that maybe aren't saved, even parents, your kids. Reminded often by my now teenage son, 13. Reminded often that they are watching every move that we make. And so it's really we're no different than Paul. He might be in a court setting, but we're in a life setting where people are watching. Sometimes people are watching us because they think if they can find flaws enough, that's going to prove our God wrong, and then they can discount God forever. But that's not always the reason people are watching. Sometimes people are watching us because they want to see the reality of God in your life before they're ready to explore the reality of God in their lives. So there's a lot to learn from Paul. And uh, maybe different setting, but there's a lot to learn from Paul. And so I'm just going to not read the whole thing, or we're going to be here forever. And I don't think you want that, although I'm pretty encouraged that last week's pastor apparently preached for an hour and six minutes. <laughs> i got to call him and thank him, because I'm short compared to him, eh? <laughs> thank you, Lee. You just freed me up to get an extra 10, 15 minutes out of my sermons. But I'm not going to read the whole thing today. I'm just going to read key verses and then kind of summarize for you. But let's start at chapter 23. Look what the little subtitle is here at the end of chapter 22. Paul before the council. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. This is the the chief priest and commanded the the chief of the courts and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. So he called this little kangaroo court of religious leaders together and he brought Paul down and set them before him. And looking intently at the council, Paul said this. This is the first words out of Paul's lips. He's so bold. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, what he's saying, all these charges you're bringing against me, like, like I've been living with a good, clean conscience before God. Summarize the rest for you. Well, this just causes, this just causes the, the Ananias, he, just, he goes off on this, and he, the guy next to to, to Paul, he's like, he's like, strike him in the mouth. And it wasn't like a little backhanded, like, you know, sometimes your kids are lippy, give them a little snip just to, like, close their lips because they won't stop any other way, you know? Like, this is like, a, like he hauled off and he cocked him in the, right in the teeth. And, and Paul, indignantly, he, like, he, he responds, and so opposite how Jesus responded. Remember Jesus in John 18, when he was, when he was hit, he, he gentle, soft. Paul shows us his humanness here. Look what he says. And Paul said to him in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Wouldn't suggest that for any of you as a practical application for this text. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Whitewashed wall was sort of like a whitewashed tomb, and whitewashed tomb was, was, it looked all good on the outside, but inside you're hollow and empty and dead. That's what he's accusing the high priest of. Oh, so you're going to say that I'm breaking the law? Like, where's it say that you can punch me in the mouth? 
But yet he didn't realize it was the high priest. I guess they must have pulled the court together so quickly that he didn't have his garb on. It wasn't official yet. And so the people in the courts were like indignant. They're like, well, you, you just hit the high priest. Who do you think you are? Paul's like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that. Because even how, no matter how people treat us, we still can't break God's laws, right? You understand that, right? There's no justification. Well, he did that to me. No, what Paul says right away, he's like, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. I'm so sorry, I had no idea. And, and so he made apology and... And then what happened is he's sitting there going like, what's next? And he realizes in front of him in the verses, um, verses 6 to the end of the, to the, to verse 10, he realizes that in front of him the, the court is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and, and they believe totally different things. And so he's pretty smart. He's a cunning, he's a cunning little fella. He, he could get himself in trouble. He could also figure out how to get himself out of trouble. And so what he did is he played, pitted the two against each other. He's like, hey, the Pharisees, you know, they believed in the resurrection and they believed in angels and the spirit realm. And the Sadducees didn't believe in that at all. And so Paul played on that. He's like, I'm only here because I believe in the resurrection. For once, the Pharisees stood with them, right? Remember, they're always trying to get them. For, for once, they got them on their side. And so this whole squabble to the Pharisees and Sadducees, this sometimes happens in churches too, right? These fights about doctrine and stuff. And, and so they got going and got going so hard that they had to, take Paul and take him out of there and, and rescue him. And I think of Paul walking away snickering like, yep, that one worked. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and commentators, as you study this, are like, you know, is, is Paul acting in the flesh here? Is he being sinful? It seems like he just truly is agitating and stirring up the pot. And I'm sure many Christians have used this text to say, see, it's okay. See, it's okay to stir the pot and make, make controversy and all those kind of things. It's, it's not. But what's happening here is, is, is Paul is, 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 I believe, being led by the Lord. And, and somehow through it all, uh, what really captured me with this first section is, is verse 1 of chapter 28. Somehow through it all, he is, he is living out authentically before God uh, a, a true life of good conscience. Soldier taken him away, and, and yet somehow he said here at the beginning of this, and I don't think because all this happened that it took the nullified verse 1. In fact, in chapter 24, he says it again. He's like, I'm living in good conscience before the Lord. Here's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes about Acts chapter 23 and 24 as we study what it is to be on mission for Jesus Christ, what it is to be on trial before the world, uh, living for a God that we love and serve. Here's the thing I want you to write down in your notes. Truly honor God, I live with a clear conscience before God. If I'm going to learn from Paul's life, I'm going to live with a clear conscience before God when the world is watching me. Your life is a trial. And how you live it makes a massive difference on how people respond to the message that you preach. And all the things we've seen Paul go through and all the, 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 the lows of life and the fleshly moments and also the spiritual moments, Paul could say this at this point in his life, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The Greek word conscience in the New Testament, it means this, a moral awareness or a moral consciousness. You know what your conscience is? That, that inner part of your being that reacts when your actions or your thoughts or your words either conform to or are contrary to the standard of right and wrong that God has given us in his word. If you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, your conscience will be active all day long. When I was a kid, I used to try and, uh, I used to 
think my conscience was a curse. How can I get rid of this conscience? My friends don't have your conscience. It's actually a blessing that God has given you. This evidence the Holy Spirit is within you. And so when you're doing things right, your conscience is affirming that that's right. When you're doing things wrong, your conscience is convicting you. Clearly, Paul's conscience was, was working really well because he got convicted. As soon as he realized it was a high priest, he got convicted. What did he do after he got convicted? He apologized immediately. So Paul was saying here that my conscience, I'm not living perfectly, but my conscience is, is, is constantly with me. And when I'm wrong, I'm quick to stop and confess that. So I can say at this point in my life, there is nothing standing between me and God. And in turn, there's nothing standing between myself and other people because that's part of the whole relationship with God thing. I asked myself as I read this passage this week and I ask you this question, if, if you were to be put on trial for your faith right now, could you utter the same words out of your lips? If we were to bring you up here one by one and you're on trial for your faith, A, would there be enough evidence to convict you of your faith? And B, would you be able to say the same thing in your life? Like, yeah, as I stand here today before God, as God is my witness, there is nothing in my life that's hindering me from God and me from other, other people. I think that's key if we're going to really be effective in living our lives with permission for, for Christ. Again, every day, people are watching. Are you living your life with a clean conscience before the Lord, even to this day? I look at Paul, I think, how freeing that must be, hey? How freeing that must have been for Paul to say, you know what? Do what you got to do, guys. Do what you got to do. Like, like, strip me down. Strip me down. Check my house. Open up my laptop. Check my bank account. Like, what do you want to know? Ask my kids, ask my family, like, what do you want to know? Like, up to this day, like, I'm not a perfect man, but every time I've failed, I've confessed it before God and made it right with others. Hire a private investigator if you have to. You're not going to find everything to conv- anything to convict me. Can you imagine if we all lived with this mindset on mission for Jesus, how powerful the gospel would be in us? Stop and think about it. Can you imagine if every believer lived with this mindset that, that when I go to bed at night, I want to be in a good conscience before God and others? Can you imagine how powerful the gospel would be effective in our church and our community? You know, the, the one thing that keeps people from the gospel, it's not even the message that we preach with our mouths, it's the message that we preach with our lives. This is a reminder for us that, 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 that we need to preach a message of the reality of the saving power of God. And we're not talking about being perfect here. Anyone in this place perfect? I'm willing to shove both my hands in my pockets and shove them far as far down as I can when I ask that question. I don't want any of you to get the impression that's popping out and popping up. And yet, you know the boldness of Paul to say this is because he daily kept short accounts with God. Clear conscience living is this, is keeping a good standing with God. Clear conscience living is this, having a good standing with God. Here's what Paul's saying, he's on trial. I have done everything within my power to do what is right by God and others. I got short accounts with God. When I mess up, I'm quick to admit that to God and ask for God's forgiveness. Not just his forgiveness to keep on going in my sin, but his forgiveness to then give me the power to walk in his righteousness. Clear conscience living is repenting daily and often. 
And every day, placing your hope again in Jesus Christ and being authentic and real in our lives. As I prepared this sermon, i mindful of this. I, I, you know how when we, when we actually tune our minds and hearts into God, you know how often our conscience works in our lives? It's more than I thought, to be honest. As I tried to practice what I'm preaching this week, man, my conscience was all the time like that thought was wrong or that, that thought was... I found myself all day confessing my sin before God. And at night again, thanking him for his amazing grace that he gives to forgive such a wicked, wretched sinner like myself. Clear conscience living isn't pretending that we're all that. It's not looking down our nose at everyone else and how righteous we are and how unrighteous they are. It's, it's, it's humbly remembering that, man, I need a Savior, not just for the moment I accept Jesus, but every day of my life. And I want to go to bed at night making sure that my heart's good with God. God, anything in my heart, anything in my heart that, that I need to confess to you before I go to bed tonight? It's having a good standing with God, but it's also this, having a right relationship with others. Paul saying, I have a good standing with God. I pray that every person in this room can say I have a good standing with God. What about this? Having a right relationship with others. To have a clear conscience before God means that we have to have a clear conscience before other people. Again, we've seen Paul mess up here, but look what he did right away. He admitted when he was wrong. He apologized. And he moved forward in the grace of God. We fool ourselves that we're thinking we're right with God and we're not right with other people. Paul clearly points that out here. I love how looking at it in his, in his sin, he got called in his sin. You know what he did? He didn't, he didn't excuse it. He didn't try and slough it off. He, he apologized for it immediately. I wonder how many of us are preaching the gospel with our lips, but with our lives and a relationship with others. We're not living it. So people are looking at us going, but that doesn't make sense. They say they're Christians. They say they're family of God. And yet, you know, I know they have this against them and that, that this against them and, and, and all this inner turmoil. And, and you know what that does? It, it just makes our message seem void to the world around us. Anyone in your life that you know that you've offended or has offended you, that you're harboring bitterness in, that, that you really couldn't say this morning, you have a clear conscience before God, because you know that there's someone, maybe even in this place today, that you don't have the time of day for, so instead you have bitterness against. And today be a good day to make that right, that, that you could leave here saying, I have a good conscience before God. It's, it's key to our testimony and our witness for Jesus Christ. It's to have a heart that pleases after God by living out a good conscience. Here's what a heart that pleases after God looks like. It's, it's the best way I know how I'm going to live and make sure my creed and my character and my conduct all align. I need to make sure my creed and my character and my conduct all align. So already Paul's got some Credibility. Probably the reason he was struck here is because somehow the high priest must have thought that somehow he was equating himself with God, thinking that, ooh, he's all that self-righteous. Paul wasn't saying that at all. All Paul was saying, you can try me all you want. You're not going to find anything because I've been living the gospel daily in my life. So look what happens at the end of this text here in verse 10. And the dissension became so violent... Picture those YouTube videos of courts overseas when they start jumping over tables and throwing things. That's sort of what's happening here. 
that Paul became, they're afraid that Paul be torn into pieces. They commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them and force them, force them to bring him into the barracks. And verse 11 is a key one. Verse 11 is a key one. The following nights, so after all this is going on again, Paul must be in this place where he's like, what's going on, Lord? I, I knew there was going to be hardship. I knew there was going to be trouble. Where's this going to end up? How's this going to go? Am I ever going to get to Rome where my ultimate goal is the following night? Look what happens. The Lord stood by him and said this, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify of me in Rome. Here's the second point I want you to write in your notes. As you live your life being watched by the world, not only must you live with a clear conscience before God for your testimony to truly be valid to the world, but get this, uh, you can be assured that Jesus will always stand by you. You can be assured that Jesus will always stand by you. I know Paul was bold. I know he had a resolve. But, but you have to remember, he was also a human being. Fear is going to creep up in his heart. Doubt is going is to flood his soul at times. And yet look what God does. Every time Paul needs, throughout this whole story of Acts, every time God's people need assurance of the Lord, what happens? God shows up in a clear, undeniable way to remind them of his power and his presence in their lives. You think that God just showed up at the road to Damascus when he saved Paul, but God is making cameos in Paul's life throughout the whole journey. And you can't miss this little verse here because this little verse sets Paul up to finish the rest of his life strong as he sets us up to finish the rest of our lives strong no matter what's going to come our way, whether it be court trials or life trials. This verse sets us up strong to finish hard on mission for Jesus Christ and have the courage and the confidence to do so, knowing this, that, you know what, as you live your life for Jesus, guess what? Everyone might abandon you, but guess what God tells you? Guess what God tells you? He will stand by you every step of the way. Isn't that why many of us don't really want to follow God wholeheartedly on mission? But what if everyone leaves? What if I have no friends left and no family? Here's what God says. They might leave. But get this. I will stand by you every step of the way. So you can do this as he says to Paul. The Lord says this to Paul. The Lord says to us, take courage. Take courage. It's another way of saying fear not. Realize that command to fear not is said about 365 times in the Bible. Coincidence that there's 365 days in a year. I think God is very deliberate and God is very intentional in how he gives us his word. Take courage. For just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Be bold, Paul. Be confident. Put your name in there. Have hope. He's not, just, he's, not, he's not just instructing. He's not just instructing Paul and us to live in good conscience and take the gospel. He's saying he's, he's, he's inviting us to trust God as we do this. And God's giving him a hope. He's saying this, this whole journey of yours, this whole life of yours has been planned perfectly by me and you will get to Rome and you will preach to the Romans. And so don't fret, don't stop, keep going. Sort of like a little spiritual pep talk that sometimes we need and we need more often we like to admit in our lives. Take courage. Keep going. Don't get distracted. Don't get sidetracked. Keep going. Even through the book of Acts, we started strong last September, right? 
Remember, remember the first couple chapters? And, and, and we're going to be his witnesses, and we're going to have power, and we're all fired up, and we're all like, yes, we're going to do this this year, Lord, yes. And we come to the end of Acts, and we're like, oh, man, can we move beyond Acts? Like, we've heard this message, of, you know, same thing, different ways, right? Preaching is not telling you new things. It's telling you the same things over and over in different ways is all it's doing. Some of us took steps of faith, and we got hammered back, and some of us are wallowing in our fear, and we need reminded of this again. Take courage. Because God has a plan for you and he will fulfill his plan in your life as you take courage. Some of us need a little pep talk like this once again. Paul needed it because look what happens. Look at the little subtitle after that. A plot to kill Paul. So Paul warms himself out of the courts. But when it was the day, the next day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath. So to make an oath back then is like, if this doesn't happen, curse me, God. Not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. I'm not going to put anything in my mouth that's going to bring me sustenance in life until this guy has no life. And so they got this big plan. Like, hey, why don't we come up with a plan? Tell them we want to hear Paul's case again. And on the way to going there, we'll ambush him and we'll kill him. And it just so happened, we talked about this before, it just so happened, does things just so happen in God's, in God's economy? Nothing. So it just so happened that Paul's nephew overheard. Now, Paul's nephew goes straight to Paul. He's like, Paul, guess what I heard? Paul's like, go tell the authorities. He goes to tell the authorities. This is all being played out here. You can read it this afternoon and, and take, don't take my word for it. Read it this afternoon. And so the authorities there are like, remember how, how big a deal it was for a prisoner to be lost? We're like, man, if they, they kill this guy, this is my job. This is my reputation. Let's do whatever it takes to make sure that Paul gets to where he's supposed to go to the next tribunal. And so what they do is, is they come up with this plan at leave at 9 o'clock at night and the Roman guard provided him 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to lead them out to get Paul from A to B safely. So, so I just want you to notice this. God tells him to take courage and basically promises, I'm going to fulfill this. The very next thing that happens is, is God provides 470 armed chaperones to get him from A to B. I think that's cool, don't you? God doesn't just stand by Paul. He provided a royal escort for Paul. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, 16. He, he says this, at my first defense, we're not sure if he's talking about this or not. No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But get this, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. It's not just for Paul that these verses are in the Bible. God has been with Paul from the very beginning, from that road to Damascus. Acts 18.9, Jesus spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid, he says. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. It seems like every time fear is overtaking him, Paul's convinced himself that he should give up. God shows up to say, don't stop. Keep going. I will be with you. God does this all the time to his people. If we're going to follow him on mission, we can be assured of one thing. The world might bail on us, and, and even other Christians might bail on us, but guess what? God promises he will stand by you. When I read this, and I think of this, this 
encounter. It doesn't say how it, whether God physically encountered or Jesus physically encountered Paul or not. But I think, you know what I think about? I think of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Shadrach and Benny, as VeggieTales says. Remember then, they took their stand for the Lord and, and bowed to this. We're not bowing. They're going to face the fiery furnace. Great, put us in the fiery furnace. God can save us from that too. Cranked her up. So hot that the guys were dying, getting close. Poked him in there with a big stick. Next day, show up, and how many people were in the fiery furnace? Four of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and someone that looked like the Son of Man. Who do you think that was? The Son of Man. Standing by his own. Let me just tell you this. You put it, put it all on the line for Jesus. Guess what? He's, he's going he's to stand by you every step of the way. He's already put it all on the line for you at the cross. Already done that. Don't have to wonder. He's already done. He's already shown that he's in this for the long haul. He's in this for good. You stand, you stand for him. And guess what? He's going to stand by you every step of the way. We can put our fear behind. We, we can put, put the, the, the mission in front. And we can live with Courage. I think of so many times in my life, in ministry, you all think it's a walk in the park and we only work Sundays. We work more than Sundays, trust me. How many times it's been to the point of like, I can't do this, God. I, I, got, I got a packet. I don't have what it takes. I, I mean, I'm starting to wonder if you're there. And, and not through manifest presence isn't like the physical presence of Jesus, but a, a Bible verse or a phone call or a text or, or, or just the Holy Spirit assurance on the inside that, you know what, you can keep going because you have all that you need. You have me. Listen to some verses that assure you that God will always stand by you as you live on mission. And even as, you, as you're, you're on trial every day, it's exhausting being on trial every day, isn't it? Some days you're like, this is exhausting. Here's what God tells you. Even as, as people oppose you because you're standing for Jesus. Here's what God tells you. As people even maybe devise plots against you. Psalm 94, verses 16 and 17. Here's what the psalmist says. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? Some of you might even feel that today. Who's with me? Who's with me? When I thought my foot slips, the psalmist says, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Amen. Amen. Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. In 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, the verse I read, here's, here's the way I, I interpret that. When everyone else bails on you, God will stand by you to strengthen you for his purposes and his namesake. So here's our confidence in living on mission. Here's why we don't give up being on mission, because the love of God compels us, and the love of God also carries us on mission. I want to encourage you, this isn't just a sermon series about being on mission. Now we leave it behind and go to the next. I assure you of that. This is the calling that God has placed on every one of our lives. Oh, good, done acts. We can be done with that whole challenge to be on mission. We don't move on from this. We, we love the Lord. We, he's given his life for us. We give our life for him 100% until the day that we meet him. 
What keeps us going, what keeps us going is we can trust that God will empower me to share what I believe. It's chapter 24. Into chapter 23 here in verse 23, Paul actually gets to Felix, the governor, and Felix was a, a ruthless, wicked governor of the higher court. He was a man who went from slavery to prominence, not by his own power. You know how he did it? He married three prominent women, three, three women, and he got himself to a place of prominence, and so he'd do anything to keep there. He was so brutal that, that he even, apparently, according to church history, uh, had a guy named Jonathan murdered, a high priest named Jonathan murdered just for criticizing him. Talk about insecure, egotistical leader, hey? Uh, sir, I don't think you did that right. Die! So this is the guy that Paul is now standing before. This is the high court. And so Paul, fresh off a word from God, came in fearlessness before the high courts. And so, and so uh, Turtleus, I'm just summarizing this for you, which is the, the, the prosecuting attorney, he gets up and he gives Felix all this flattery. Oh, Felix, thank you for all of your goodness to the people. And the, the Jewish people are probably like, what in the world is he talking about? He has been nothing but harshness to the people, but he's you know, flattering him up. And, and then he brings the, the charge against, against Paul. Look at verse um, 5 in verse chapter 24. Here's the charge. So again, picture court scene. Here's the charge. What's the charge against this man? I'll give you the charges. We have found this man to be a plague. They called a lot of things. They've ever been called a plague? Like he's not an idiot. He's not, he's not like a, a jerk. He's a plague. Think bubonic plague. Think the plagues in Exodus. Like this is a detriment to society. He's killing society. Like, like we'd be better off just to rid the world of him. He's a plague. Look at the second charge. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Third charge. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. The fourth charge. But we seized him. This last one's a big one because even the Roman government gave, gave Jews permit massive power to protect their temple. And so, so basically they're trying to, they're trying to get him sentenced to death. Paul, because God said he's going to be with him, and I'm sure he's thinking Acts 4. Remember Acts 4 when Peter and John were, were going to be on trial and God said, and they said to him, don't worry what you're going to say. I'll give you the words to say all the time. And the people saw, man, these, these are just regular guys, but they'd been with Jesus. I'm sure he's thinking of those things. So here's what, here's what Paul says. Kind of like a cheeky confidence. He doesn't, need a, he doesn't need a defense lawyer. Why? God's his defense lawyer. So he represents himself. He's thinking probably, God's already booked my ticket to Rome. I don't have anything to worry about. And so I think that's the same confidence we can have if we daily meet with Jesus and get into his word and, and take his word at word. At face value, I think we can have the same confidence. Here's, here's what he says in verse 10, kind of, a, kind of cheeky. Here's all the charges. The governor, governor nods to Paul and says, now's your time to speak. Here's what Paul says. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense to you. It's almost like that. <laughs> Stop smiling. We're all having a pretty serious moment here. Paul's like, I gladly give you my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So what he's saying is like, like, like all these things about me being a plague and all these things about me disrupting things. I've only been there 12 days and why did I go there? I went there to worship. And ask anybody. I wasn't disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd. So bring the evidence, guys. Show me. Bring the witnesses. I didn't do it. 
either in the temple or in the synagogues or the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Can't prove that I'm a leader of a Jewish sect. Are you kidding me? But this I confess to you that according to the way, remember what the way is? The way is Christianity, so the way of Christ. According to the way, which they call a sect, I worship. He's defending himself, but look what he's doing. He's actually giving a clear summary of what he believes as he's giving defense for himself. I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Mr. Defending himself, saying, all these charges you have against me, like I'm not, I'm not disrupting temples, I'm, I'm worshiping my God. And, and he's really giving a, a, an apologetic for his faith. He's giving a defense of his faith. Verse 16, so I always take pains, I always take pains, back to point one, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. If I'm doing something wrong, don't you think God would have convicted me about that already? Now, after several years, I came back only to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And so, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. See what Paul's doing here? He's, he's giving a defense, but at the same time, he's, he's teaching them what he believes. Not just like, not just this, this like defensive, like, you can't say that, bring the proof. He's like, he, he's doing that, but he's also with... I believe humility with a, a tone that they're going to hear. He's, he's, this is what I believe. And he's, he's taken even this, this hard trial as an opportunity to profess his faith in Jesus Christ and tell them what is really the, the doctrine of what he believes. Felix doesn't know what to do with this. And so he sends him away for a few days. Comes back to meet with Paul personally. In verse 24, after some days, Felix came back with his wife, who is Jewish, and he heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And get this, he's reasoning about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And so he's not pounding him, he's not preaching as we think of preaching. He's just having a dialogue and saying, Felix, you've got to take all these things. It says a little earlier that Felix understood the way. Of the, understood the way. So all this stuff like, is stirring in Felix's heart. So he's having a straight-up man-to-man conversation. Felix, I'm just going to tell you the way it is. And this rattled Felix so much, he became alarmed. Why did he become alarmed? Probably because he was starting to be convicted by the truth. And he's realizing righteousness and remember his history about women and all that stuff, a womanizer, self-control and coming judgment. And he's probably thinking like, man, there is a heaven and there's a hell. So what does he say? Just, just go away from me. I don't want to deal with it. Just go away from me. And he went away from it for two years until Felix was replaced. The next governor came in. Probably, in the, probably went back to him because he was hoping for a bribe didn't happen. Instead, what he happened is he got more of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we learn from all this? I think we learn a lot from this text. 
one thing I think we learn is this, is if we're, as we're on trial, as the world watches us, as the world asks us questions, if you're living for Jesus, they're going to ask questions. As the world, as the world sits back and, and explores the reality of God through our lives, here's the reality. In the midst of all this, God's going to bring me ample opportunities to be grilled about what I believe. And we need to be ready to share what we believe. God's going to bring ample opportunities for us if we're living it out and putting into practice all that we've heard over the last year. People are going to ask questions. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to scratch the itch of their hearts to know about God. And, and, and what Paul's teaching is that we ought to be ready. We ought to know what we believe and be ready to, to present it in a way that's engaging people, in a way they're going to hear it and respond to it. Not mincing the truth, but keeping the audience in mind. I think most of us, most of us, when it comes to like, oh, they're going to ask me questions about the faith, they're going to ask me questions about the faith. You know what we do? We hightail it out of there. I don't want to be grilled about my faith. I, I just want to live it and go to church and be a good Christian person. But, but here's the reality. We're going to live on mission. We have to not just not run away from being grilled, but, but go to those places where we know people are going to grill us about our faith. Why are we so afraid to be grilled about our faith? I believe twofold. One is that we don't know what we really believe well enough. And so afraid that people are going to poke holes in what we believe and we're going to come to doubt what we believe. Here's, here's what I think Paul teaches. We need to know what we believe, church. Somehow in our culture, we've reduced this to like this raise the hands moment of I got this, what do you believe? I got this warm fuzzy in church. That's what I believe. Jesus is real. And they're looking at us going like, Really? Maybe it was something else. Shot of air conditioning or something. And somehow we've reduced Jesus to a relationship to the fact that we don't study anymore. And we don't dig in anymore to know what we really believe. Not just that we know it in our hearts in a way that we can then proclaim it and defend it before other people. I'm amazed when I run into people of other faiths. They know their faith inside and out and backwards. And I sometimes stand across from conversations going like, how come Christians don't know our faith? We serve the real God. We serve the living God. We're going to be with him forever and eternity. Now, the last thing on our agenda is we've got to study about our faith. And it's a chore. And it's monotonous. Studying theology and knowing what we believe is not a chore and it's not monotonous. It's life-giving. It shows us the reality of God and who God is and who I am and how I relate to God. And, and the theology is one of the greatest things that your mind will ever be satisfied in studying. It's not a textbook we're studying. It's words of life and hope. Paul's telling us here that, look what he says. I worship God. When's the last time you've told someone, I worship God, hoping that they're going to ask more questions? Well, who is this God? What is he about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what my God's about. I believe everything laid out in the law. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is 66 books of inspiration from God. All of it. Not one part of it is, 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 is man-made. This is all breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16. Useful for our lives. I know it's not politically correct anymore to stand on the word of God, but it's all that we have to stand on. I believe everything written in the... I know our culture will be, what about you really believe that? No, my pastor said that. 
Yes, I believe this. And let me, let me show you how I've come to this conclusion. And in verse 15, I have a hope in God. I hope people are asking you, where's your hope coming from? I hope it's, you're not telling us coming from your paycheck or from, from your, your good looking spouse or from your, your, your kids that are excelling in whatever sport they're excelling in. I hope you're saying my hope comes from God. My ultimate hope comes in that there is going to be a resurrection one day and there's going to be a judgment day and there is going to be heaven and there's going to be hell. And because of the grace of God, I stand on the side of heaven. And so I share this with you that you might too. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to dig into what you believe. If you don't know where to start, dig into this. The Apostles' Creed, and it's not, it's not a perfect statement. It wasn't even written by the Apostles, to be honest. It was written 150 years after the Apostles had died. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's a summary of doctrine. It's a summary of what they say the Apostles taught. It was, it, there's a few holes in it, so don't, don't take it. Again, get in your word and study. Don't take it as is. But here's the Apostles' Creed, and we all need to know this. this is a good place to start. Well, I don't know what I believe. Start here. Start studying these truths. Here's what the Apostles' Creed says. That is the testimony of every believer. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Well, I, I, maybe I don't believe that stuff. This is, this is biblical. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died and was buried. He descended to hell. We can debate that few last four words. Again, not infallible, but a good start for understanding the summary of the doctrine we believe. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy... We can leave the next word out because it's not biblical again. The Holy Church. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Every believer should be able to not just quote this but know this and articulate this. This is where the reality of the hope that we have. Every believer ought to be able to, 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone asks you who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. And you do this with gentleness and respect. I can't remember the last time I heard of a church that offered an apologetics course. You know what apologetics is? First time I heard of that, I was, went to Bible college and like, they said, you're going to take an apologetics course. I'm like, I say sorry all the time. I'm good at it. <laughs> Not that kind of apologetics. The, the, the art of knowing and presenting and defending biblical truth. That you might live out 1 Peter 3.15. Here's 1 Peter 3.15. Honoring God and truly knowing God and believing God and articulating your faith and defending your faith. We're going we're gonna to offer you an apologetics course this coming year. Jeremy's putting some stuff together. We've offered you evangelism and apologetics. You can, you can know what you believe and how to present that to the world around you. This is important for us. Expand your mind. Expand your heart. It's going to build a strong foundation for you so that you know what you believe. If you don't know what you believe, you're in trouble when the storms come. And you're in trouble when opposition comes and it's getting harder. But also you might be effective in helping other people know Jesus. This is, our, this is our ultimate joy in life. Helping other people know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I encourage you to take time to study. That you be able to be like Paul. And, and God promises to be with us. But here's the thing. We think, well, God's promised to be with me. I don't need to study. He's going to give me the words to say. 
half right. It's like trusting God's going to be with you on your final exam and never studying. Is that going to work? Is it? Some of you students are like, I hope so. It's not going to work. So we also study hard that we might be able to give an account of our hope at every circumstance, just like Paul did. As we run into all different kinds of people, humanists who believe that they are God and spiritually charged people, whether they're atheists or agnostics or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, we have the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, that we need to proclaim to the world around us. Here's the reality. You're on trial every day, and you are communicating the gospel daily to people through your words and through your actions. Let me leave you with this, a little poem. As you think about how you can do this effectively for the Lord. You are writing a gospel, a chapter, each day by deeds you do, by words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? It's your life telling people. Because we are just like Paul on trial. We need to be living the clear conscience before God. We can know that God's going to stand with us no matter who's against us. And we can be trusted, we're going to be strengthened to share the good news of Jesus. Every opportunity we have, let me pray. God, I thank you for the living and active word of God. Father, I pray today that as we've come into this place, we would have heard a message that would not just speak to our minds, but speak to our hearts. God, some in this place today, I'm sure, don't have a clean conscience before you, whether it's a sin that they're hiding in their heart or a a relationship that's broken. Oh, God, today would you help them realize before they leave that they need to be right with their God. This is the first step. Maybe some have never even accepted you as personal savior. They know all about you, Lord, but they're, they're just sitting on the sidelines saying, but I don't yet want to dive in. I know there's, there's a cost. I know there's a price to be paid. Oh God, may you remind them today, even through our communion, how much of a price you are willing to pay for them. And God, would today be the day of salvation that they would know that they could have a good conscience before you, not just today, but even on judgment day. That would catapult them to heaven as opposed to hell. God, I pray for those who are discouraged or those who are getting distracted in this journey of being on mission. Father, today, would you remind them that you are with them? Yes, it's hard, and yes, people might be opposed to them, but you will never let them go, O Lord. You will stand by them until the day they meet you, and you'll usher them from this life to next. Would you encourage us, Lord, through that truth? Would would we even see the times in our lives where you're doing this in our lives, just like you did in Paul's life? You're, You're providing an escort for us to fulfill every calling in our lives. Let this encourage us and motivate us to live on mission for you every minute of every day. And God, finally, would you empower us to be a people who don't just talk about the truth on Sundays, who don't just have an emotional response to the truth in here on Sundays, but actually who study and study to be workmen approved by you, God. That as we go and as questions come, as we start conversations, as conversations happen, that we would know what we believe and we'd be able to articulate us to a world around us that so desperately needs Jesus, that so desperately needs a father who loves them, that so desperately needs forgiveness, who so desperately needs meaning and hope in life. Would you help us in all these things, God? We just want to be faithful. We can't be faithful without you. We've tried hard on our own. We can't. Thank you for Jesus.
Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We surrender ourselves to you again today, God.